That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage, exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Yes, welcome aboard. It is another episode of Cascade of History. This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM Magnuson Park. Getting that legal ID out of the way, since I forgot to press a couple of buttons and you didn't hear the first part of the intro. Though I'll correct that for the podcast. So, But that's... That's what we offer our live listeners is that really raw, um, unpolished, um, unslick live local radio where sometimes the right buttons don't get pressed. But, you know, when you go back and fix it in post, as they say. All right. I am Felix Bunnell. It is a live episode of Cascade of History. Um, been off for a couple of weeks. I think our last episode was in on May 21st, if I'm not. Uh, I think that's the last time we did a live show. Had a lot of reruns in between. Lots of other stuff going on. And that's kind of going to be how it's going to roll this summer. I won't be doing a live show every single Sunday. It will vary. I can't really predict exactly when live shows will be or when there will be reruns. But you just have to tune in every Sunday night at 8 o'clock Pacific time to Space 101.1 FM, the biggest little radio station in all of the Pacific Northwest, punching high above our weight with all sorts of great programs like the one that was on just before and the one that will be on after me. And if, if you don't hear the live broadcast, of course, we always have the podcast available You can get it through SoundCloud. You can get it through Apple Podcasts, through Spotify. Um, The best place to start is our Facebook page, the Cascade of History Facebook page. We post links there to to, about the topics we're going to talk about, uh, links to previous shows once the podcast is available, which is usually late Sunday night, uh, not too long after the show ends. It's available there. And, of course, you can always go to the Space 101.1 website, which is space101fm.org. That's where the stream is located. You can live stream this show anywhere in the world. And there's information about the other programs that are on all throughout the week, in addition to Cascade of History. All right, so we have a, a busy show tonight. It's, um, we're going to vary from the format a little bit. We have a live interview coming up in just a minute. But then we're going to go deep into the archives, which I'll talk about that in a second. But um, if you have any questions during the show, you can always reach out through cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. We'd love to get viewer mail. I don't have any viewer mail to share this week, unfortunately. But um, we do have the, uh, the final episode, the final conclusion, concluding grand finale episode of our Washington at Work program about the J.C. Penney department store in downtown Seattle when it was opening back in 1938. Do you remember how uh, our final, our episode 12 ended? Mr. Mack, uh, you're a longtime resident of Seattle, aren't you? Yes. Uh, you're alone. <laughs> Boy, that was that was even shorter than I thought it was going to be. Um, that's how the show ended, or that's how the previous installment ended. We are going to have our final installment of Washington at Work, episode 13. Finally, put that thing to to rest after several months. If you like that show, I'm I'm sorry it's ending. If you hate it, I'm really happy to report that it's over. Uh, let's see, uh, in the like the second half of the show or the second two thirds of the show. I'm going to play a couple of vintage recordings of an interview I did with a guy named Gordon DeWitty, the late Gordon DeWitty. He was a young DJ, one of the youngest DJs in American history. He was about 12 years old back around 1961 here in Seattle for a station called KZAM. Now, this isn't Kazam, the station from the late 70s and early 80s that many people may still remember that played a lot of new wave songs. It's the first station I ever heard, Video Killed the Radio Store. Not Video. (laughs) Video Killed the Radio Store. That would be weird. I don't, I don't know of any radio stores. Video Killed the Radio Star. I first heard that on Kazam back in 19, whatever, 1980, maybe. Anyway, but 20 years before that, there was a station called Kazam, 92.5, Seattle's first black radio station playing black music with black DJs. And one of the DJs was a guy named Gordon D. Witty. I tracked him down. This is about seven years ago. Had a couple of long conversations with him. And then he suddenly, out of the blue, unexpectedly passed away. And all the plans we'd made to dig even deeper into local black radio history went away. But anyway, I'll, I'll play those interviews because I want to get sort of officially enter them into the record. Um, he's an interesting guy, and I'm really sorry I never got a chance to meet him in person, And uh, but we'll, we'll go deep on that topic. Um, but before we do that, uh, we're going to talk to John Carp, who's with Save Tacoma's Landmark Church. And as I always do, let's see if I can press the right button to get uh, John Carp to join us here. John, can you hear me? 
I can. Oh, I love when that happens. <laughs> That's Long-time listeners to the show will know I'm always sort of uh, amazed when the buttons, I press all the right buttons, and the, the caller is there on the other line. Since I'm here by myself in the studio, it's saying I have a one-man band this show. I couldn't, I couldn't convince anyone to help me. But anyway, I'm glad when it works out. Thanks for taking time to join us um, here on Cascade of History, live tonight on sure. this Sunday night show. Um, now, I, I think I talked to you about four years ago, well, maybe almost four years ago, uh, doing a piece for Cairo Radio about the Holy Rosary Church in Tacoma about it being threatened. But before we go into that, I know this is a really recognizable landmark to anyone who spends any time on Interstate 5 in Pierce County. Can you can you tell us where this church actually is and what it looks like? So yeah, so Holy Rosary is um, it's the the big church you see from the freeway. It's what people call it in Tacoma. It's um, it is uh, just south of Pacific Avenue, um, uh, and you can see it right from I five. It, it's right next to High Five. Um, it is a um, Gothic cathedral. Um, well, it's not a cathedral. It's a, it's a church, but it's built in that style. Um, it was constructed in 1920 for a church parish that was founded um, in the 1870s. Um, it was originally uh, for the German immigrant community. So, you know, there were Irish Catholics, but the Germans wanted a German parish. So they founded Holy Rosary and got a, got a priest and, and eventually built this magnificent church that has been uh, gracing the, the Tacoma skyline for 103 years now. Yeah, the, the steeple is incredible. I mean, even if you are completely um, athe- an atheist or agnostic or whatever, the architectural grandeur of that steeple as you drive, as you see it in the distance as you're approaching it, and then as you drive right past it, then as it recedes into the rearview mirror, it's just this, there's nothing else like it that I know of anywhere in the I-5 corridor that's that's so visible and on such a prominent piece of land. Yeah, it is. It's on, it's on, it's really in a wonderful location. You know, when it was built, of course, Tacoma was much smaller and it was kind of built on the edge of town, but now, you know, Tacoma has grown and it's, it's, it's in a, a great area, which is, I think, part of why it's in danger. Um, and um, it's beautiful. It's and it's you know a piece of Tacoma history. We we um, so my connection with it. You know, my family. Uh, we are Catholics. We moved up here. Uh, I was in the U.S. Army, and we were parishioners at Holy Rosary. Um, but I meet people all the time who you know they're not Catholic. Maybe they haven't been Catholic for generations, but. You know, their grandmother was married in the church, or mm. or you know went to school at the school, and, and it's they see it as a part of their family too. So really, it, it you know it is a Catholic church, but it it, it is really a, just a part of Tacoma. It's it, part of what makes Tacoma Tacoma is the big church by the freeway. Yeah, and that that sort of visual landscape. You know, I mean, there's it, it's hard to sort of quantify or hard to set a value to, but. I noticed in Seattle, particularly like the old King Street Station, is now getting kind of hemmed in by big buildings around it. It doesn't really stand out on its own anymore. I mean, the Space Needle still stands alone at the north part of downtown, but those visual places you never might not even set foot in once every or ever or very often, they're part of the thing that tells you you're in your home or you're in the place that you know and love. So this church, I think it was four years ago when it first came under some kind of threat because of a decision or... Um, plans of the Seattle Archdiocese. So what was the threat four years ago? So four years ago, um, a piece of plaster fell in from the ceiling uh, into the choir loft. Uh, there mm. was water damage. Uh, that I believe there was a blocked gutter downspout that was causing water to accumulate on the roof that was then percolating down and it damaged the plaster. The plaster fell. Um, the church, initially, they just closed the choir loft and some of the back pews, but eventually they closed the entire church. Um, we started having mass in the school gym and just sort of nervously anticipated what the archdiocese was going to do. We founded St. Tacoma's Landmark Church, initially hoping to work with the archdiocese and kind of be a, a like a bridge between the, the, the secular community that cares, and, and I don't mean just secular, the non-Catholic community who cares about Holy Rosary and, and wants it as a part of Tacoma, and, you know, the Catholic community in the archdiocese. Well, the Archdiocese um, responded with enormous hostility. Um, we were forbidden to meet, and this is this is an organization that's. Um, I mean, it's it's secular in in name and constitution, but you know the, the people who got together and started it are all Catholic. Mm-hmm. We were forbidden to meet on any archdiocesan property. We could not meet in our own like parish hall. Mm. Um, so with the the other churches in Tacoma took us in. We started holding meetings in a Lutheran church. Wow. Um, 
And they eventually, the decree came down that they wanted to, um, so I'm going to use a little bit of technical language that I'll explain. They wanted to relegate the church to profane but not sordid use and then raise it. So what that means, so in, in, in the Catholic Church, a church is a special building. Um, for it to be used as anything but a church, it has to be, like, formally deconsecrated. Hmm. Um, and the archdiocese issued the decree to do that and followed on with that, that they were that what they were going to do with it was demolish it. Profane but not sordid means you could have, like, a restaurant in it, but you can't have a strip club in it. Got it. Um, so, and they, they decreed that they were going to tear it down. Um, and we got in touch with a lawyer, a gentleman by the name of Brody Hale, who works on these cases, got an appeal together, filed it with the archdiocese, um, and Archbishop Achen, who had taken over for Archbishop Sarton in the interim, um, decreed that he was giving himself an indefinite period to consider the appeal, which is his right under canon law, and their thing sat for four years. Um, so the way the way it works is um, in in the church, if if you make an appeal against the decree, there's sort of an uh, to use like civil law, there's an automatic stay issued on the decree um, while the appeal is considered. So that decree has been stayed all this time. And then um, the reason I'm on the radio today is because the archdiocese uh, just recently, I think two weeks ago, issued another decree to uh, do the same thing they tried to do four years ago. Um, we got another appeal together, and we're going to do it all again. And that decree from two weeks ago, did they did they actually formally respond to any of the things in your appeal of four years ago? No, they did not. Um, huh. They didn't. The, the The decree, as written, doesn't even acknowledge that the prior decree existed. Um, hmm. uh, we consulted with some uh, canon law experts, and essentially, because the the way the decree is written, it wipes out the previous decree. Um, okay. And supplants it, so they, which is why we had to file a new appeal. Um, but it it doesn't address any of our arguments. The archdiocese will not talk to us. Uh, we have written the archbishop letters, both as a group and, and several, uh, probably dozens of uh, individuals have written him letters. Uh, some major donors to the archdiocese have asked to meet with him. I'm not going to name names because I don't want to get anybody in, in sure. an uncomfortable situation. <laughs> oh, but, come on. Go ahead. You can name names. No one, no <laughs> one's listening. I mean, there's you and me here. Who, who else would hear? No, I'm just, <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, it, it, it sounds, so it ahead. sounds to me like, um, the archdiocese is intent on demolishing the building, regardless of the fact there's this community movement, which is made up largely of parishioners from Holy Rosary. Um, mm-hmm. is there a, is what's in it for the archdiocese to tear it down? Is it, is it selling the real estate and generating some, I know, I know they're like, I know the Catholic church is hurting for cash for lots of reasons and hurting for, yeah. for, uh, parishioners for lots of reasons too. Um, I, I do, is there a, do, have they done some sort of like cost benefit analysis in terms of the cash as well as the community relations part versus sort of what they get for tearing it down versus what they get for working with a group like yours? Yeah, well, they, they don't, you know, they don't communicate anything with us. But it, as you mentioned earlier, the, the church is in an amazing location. Um, it has, you know, if you if you built condos on that parcel, they would have magnificent sweeping views of yeah. downtown Tacoma, Commencement Bay, the mountains. Um, and I think that the reason they want to tear it down is because they want to sell the land and mm-hmm. get the money. Um, now. There's a little quirk of the law at play here. Um, Tacoma is registered as an architectural monument of Tacoma. Um, not Tacoma. Holy Rosary is registered as that. Okay. And <clears throat> any organization other than a religious organization would be bound by all the historic preservation requirements in Tacoma. To, the, the Tacoma permitting uh, would not issue a demolition permit for that property. They would not allow it to be torn down. But... There was a law passed, I think, in the year 2000, um, that, among other things, said that religious organizations are exempted from local zoning requirements unless it could be demonstrated that they're absolutely necessary. Mm. So what that means is the archdiocese is the only organization that could tear down Holy Rosary. Um, if they sold it with the church intact, the buyer would have to keep the church intact. Now, they might uh, repurpose the interior, and they would also be bound by all the city's historic preservation. So as beautiful as the church is, as much as we love it, from a pure business perspective, it is 
an albatross around the neck of that parcel. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if it was if if it was gone, they could sell that parcel for who knows twenty million dollars maybe. Wow. So um, so what was your what would be your wish for the what for what would happen with that property? What's what's the dream that your group has for doing with that property other than demolishing it? What would you like to see there instead? Yeah. So so we we are established to to preserve it as a Catholic uh, church. Um, now. The re- part of the reason that we're doing taking that approach, well, there's you know there's the, the obvious one that we are Catholics who were parishioners of that church and we love it and we want to continue to worship there, but there's also um, the church has a lot of rights under canon law. Um, it, you can't just demolish a church for any old reason under under church law. So our vision is, of course, keeping it as a church. Um, there are many ways that that could be done. Um, there are religious orders who have expressed interest to us in possibly uh, buying the, the whole campus or part of it um, and making establishing themselves there. Uh, there are other parishes in Tacoma um, who have expressed interest um, in, in buying it, and they have been uh, rebuffed. Um, there are ways to preserve it as a church, and even even leaving aside religious orders, you know, there there are uh, shrines and oratories that are basically just churches that people go to to pray in mm-hmm. um, all over all over the country, and a lot of them are historic churches like Holy Rosary. You know, when I five was put in, Holy Rosary lost most of its neighborhood. Uh, yeah, um, and so that's you know, attendance has been on a steady decline since then. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You know, it is it is such a beautiful church, mm-hmm. it's such a prominent location that we firmly believe that it, it it is viable as a Catholic worship space, and we also want it to be more of an asset to the community. You know, it is it is a it's a beautiful church, but it's also a great big building. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of space in it that could host, uh, you know, social services, outreach, um, all kinds of, you know, community services in that building that we would. We would love to do, especially if we got the whole campus, yeah. um, because there's there's a convent, there's a, a school and a rectory, but also on the campus. Huh. Um, I know you guys have you guys have raised some money and gotten some pretty serious pledges of of support, cash pledges, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So originally, the archdiocese said it would be two million dollars to reopen the church. Well, we raised that, huh. <laughs> and then they said, "Oh no, no, wait! Actually, it's going to be seven million dollars." Um, is that called? Is these, that called moving the steeple? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not the goalposts. <laughs> yeah, none, none of these numbers have been substantiated. No documentation yeah. has been offered. I'm, I'm actually an engineer by trade, a civil engineer. I, I'm uh. not a structural engineer, but I'm fully qualified to look at an engineer's estimate and understand it. It has not been offered or shared with anyone. Um, it's all the archdiocese is making these decisions right now. They're hiding behind. Um, the Vietnamese parish in Tacoma, which a bunch of other parishes were amalgamated into, and the name was changed from St. Anne's to St. John the 23rd, um, and they're saying, well, it was their decision to tear it down. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I, I very much doubt they decided freely, and if they did decide freely, I very much doubt they had all the facts. Be- because um, your, your parish isn't housed there at all anymore. Your parish has been moved elsewhere or consolidated someplace? Our, our parish is gone. Uh, Holy Rosary, uh, the parish, has um. been suppressed by the bishop, um, and the land, so a Catholic parish is territorial, right? Okay. And the, the parish territory has been amalgamated into this new St. John the Twenty Third parish. I see, I see. So, so what's next in this? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of sounds like a, I mean, battle might be too strong a word, but in this, in this uh, I don't know what to call it. What's next? What's, what's going to happen next, I guess? Well, we, we, I put an appeal personally in the hand of um, the receptionist at the Chancery Building, uh, which is you know, the main archdiocese and headquarters, uh, two Fridays ago. Okay. And um, that appeal will presumably be denied by the archdiocese. Maybe it won't. Maybe, maybe God will move the heart of the archbishop and save the church, but we anticipate it will probably be rejected. And we will then immediately appeal to Rome. Um, we will hire a—we have the funds and, and donors who are going to back us to hire a canon lawyer in um, Rome who wow. will represent us personally um, in front of the, the groups that appeal. And wow. per, per the code of canon law, 
they are not allowed to tear down a church if the resources exist to preserve it as a church. And we, the resources do exist. Um, if, if they're too, you know, they, when we raised our $2 million, I kind of was like, okay, so, you know, we, we can start hiring contractors, right? The archdiocese <laughs> completely ignored it. They didn't, they wow. didn't even say no. Wow. They said nothing. We've written letters. And I mean, and, and part of it is, you know, I'm a Catholic. I raised my children to be Catholic. Um, my wife's a Catholic, converted because she married me. Mm-hmm. And the archbishop is supposed to be my pastor, you know? Yeah. He's supposed to be the, the shepherd of this flock that I'm in. And he won't answer letters. He won't, wouldn't even acknowledge that he got them. I mean, I didn't even get a pro forma thank you for your letter, but no. Wow. Just nothing. And it's it's a slap in the face. You know, he he just bought himself a two point three million dollar mansion in Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is pretty nice, you know. Um, <laughs> and but, there's nothing yeah, wrong. I mean, you know, if I'm the archbishop, I'd want to live someplace. You can do both, right? You you could preserve Holy yeah, Rosary yeah, and have yeah. a nice residence for the archbishop. Well, <laughs> They're not mutually well, exclusive. <laughs> well, what's funny is when when Archbishop Achen came here, he made a big show of how he was going to live humbly. And, you know, he, I forget where he was staying, but it wasn't anywhere fancy. And he sold the archbishop's residence. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now he's, well, he, you know, I guess, you know, the apartment gets a little cramped. He needs he need <laughs> some space, I guess. Now, um, I guess, now, but, you're, now you're making me think I need to invite the archbishop to be on the show in a, in a fall and kind of give him kind of a chance to respond. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to do that in a subsequent episode. I'll do that. I'll, I'll reach out. I yeah. hope he does. I'll have to reach out. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's maddening to me. When I, when I went to hand that appeal in, right, I was in I'm, – I'm, I apologize to your viewers. I'm not 100% on my Seattle geography. As I said, I, I moved up here. <laughs> but I think, it's, I think the chancery is in the First Hill neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right there next, yeah, to, next to where uh, St. James Cathedral is, right around the corner. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very nice area. It is, yeah. And this chancery, it's a huge office building. It's magnificent. If they're so hard up for cash, sell that and move into an office park in Centralia. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, the Catholic Church is not supposed to be here for office buildings. <laughs> okay. Now, do you guys have any big public events planned to kind of generate kind of like the, like the pitchforks and torches kind of thing, or the sort of like the celebratory, like save the church sort of thing? Or? Yeah. Well, I, I wish I could. I wish I could announce an event. We're still in the planning stages, trying to secure venues and stuff. So everything, you know, the appeal was was uh, pending. And then COVID happened, and we just kind of were like, okay, everything is in a holding pattern yeah, for now. Yeah, absolutely. So we are we are gearing back up. Uh, we are working on uh, holding some events. Uh, we have, I don't have anything to announce yet. When we do, I'll, I'll be in touch, and you can tell your listeners if they want to come. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're we're I mean we're back at it. And you know, last, last time we tried, we really wanted to work with the archdiocese. We really thought this could be you know a a a, a Good, good press for the archdiocese. They Absolutely. could turn this around. They could work with us, preserve the church, you know, and and it could be a a, a good, a positive story for them. They've decided they want it to be a negative story, and I am I am happy to give them as negative a story as they like. <laughs> I like your passion. I like your spirit. I, I I sometimes I talk to historic preservation people, and they're really calm and kind of just like. Low energy. I like your energy. I think I think well, that's an asset to the to the project. Um, and definitely, yeah. Yeah, if if when you're if and when you guys plan an event, let me know. We'll have you back on the show um, because I think historic preservation. And the thing that always bothers me in these in this day and age, where everyone's staring at their phones or playing video games or not talking to their neighbors, the fact that any group gets together and wants to try to do something positive and like actually is doing something other than just you know staring at their phones and are organizing to try to create something or try to create some kind of opportunity in raising money, I think anyone in a position of authority, whether it's an archbishop or a, a mayor or a county executive or a governor, that's, that's, we want our citizens doing stuff like that. That's what makes, that's makes the fabric of our community stronger. And so I, I just, you know, I don't, I don't get how anyone can, 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 not, can say no or can not even respond when a group like yours is trying to get some sort of answer and try to make some progress. And you're not asking for a handout. You're asking for time and asking for the opportunity to do something that you want to, to do. So yeah, I don't, I don't understand when big organizations don't respond. I, I don't get that at all. So I don't either. You know, all, all what, we, what I've said repeatedly um, all through this, all we are asking for is a chance. 
let us at the buildings. Let us in the building. Let us have the building assessed. Let's get let us get estimates. Let us, you know, if if the estimates come back and we can afford it, let us hire the contractors. Like we're not asking the archdiocese for money. Yep. I they they need it for mansions, and I respect that. <laughs> um, <laughs> How, now, did you did you rehearse this before coming on the show tonight? This is all you got. You have some good lines. You kind of like remind no, me of like a, just, uh, a political debate where someone has the zingers. You know, I'm not going to make my opponent's youth and inexperience an issue in this campaign. Yeah. Or, <laughs> you know, it's just it's really something that I'm passionate about. You know, my little daughter was baptized in that church, and I want to see her married in that church one day. And nice. I I I just am willing to work as hard as it takes to make that happen. You know that. That church belongs to a lot of people. It belongs to all of Tacoma, the whole Pacific Northwest, but it, it also belongs to my little daughter, and it's going to be there for her. Amen. Um, quick question now. Is there a place on the web, or I know you guys have a Facebook page, but where can the uninitiated learn more about um, Save Tacoma's Landmark Church? So if you Google Save Tacoma's Landmark Church, you should come up with our web page. We also have a Facebook page if you search that on Facebook. Um, there is a mailing list you can get on, I believe, through the website. Um, and then you'll get updates from us. Uh, we just sent out our first update in a that we've sent out in a, several years because of <laughs> the new decree. Okay. Um, and it's gotten a lot of response. Our mailing, our people who receive our emails are still very interested, very concerned. Uh, all our announcements, all our events are announced through that. And, um, yeah, um, right. you can email us at savedtacomaslandmarkchurch at gmail.com and, uh, if, if all else fails. All right. Well, John Carp, uh, thanks for coming on Cascade of History. I like what you guys are doing. I like the energy, and I uh, consider us your your friend here in broadcasting. And any time you need to get the word out, let me know, and we'll have you on the show to come back with an update. If you want to help organize or get people to turn out to an event or something, I'm always happy to have you guys on. So please please keep me posted. And um, thanks for being a guest tonight on Cascade of History. John Carp with yep. Save Tacoma's Landmark Church. Right. Thank you for having me. Have a good night. You too. So long. All right, that's that's an exciting project. I still can't. I don't. I don't get those big organizations when they see a community group organizing to do something positive, but they can't try to at least work with them. I mean, that's that's what I think happened out at um, Parkland School with with Pacific Lutheran University when they saw that that group had energy, was doing something positive, neighbors getting together, especially as the pandemic was winding up. It made sense to try to work with them and give them time, and you know, anyway. With it, not within my power, but all right. That's uh, that again. That was John Carp with Save Tacoma's Landmark Church, uh, trying to save the Holy Rosary Church down there, right next to Interstate Five. And if you've driven through Tacoma, you know exactly what we're talking about. And I will put some of that information. I think it's already there, actually, at the Cascade of History Facebook page. All right. Well, um, you, let's. You remember how our our twelfth episode of Washington at Work ended? No, that's not it. <laughs> Here's how it ended. Mr. Mac. You're a long-time resident of Seattle, aren't you? Well, let's go right into the final episode of that phone thing ringing. That's the next, <laughs> that's the next thing I'm going to play after we play this episode, the final grand finale of Washington at Work, J.C. Penney Building, 1938. Yes, I came to Seattle in 1906, just a small boy in knee britches, and I've been in and near Seattle practically all my life. Well, Mr. Mack, we've pointed out throughout the course of this broadcast of Washington at Work that we consider the operations of the J.C. Penney Company throughout the state a vital and important link in the story of Northwest industry. What, in your opinion, was the contributing factor in the decision of your company to create in Seattle this fine new store? Well, that's a very easy question to answer, Mr. Bradley. Our experience here has given us tremendous confidence in Seattle and surrounding territory. That confidence has built this new store. And in this new store is reflected the confidence that the buying public of Seattle has placed in us. We were determined, therefore, to parallel that buying support we have received by creating here in Seattle the finest, most modern unit that ingenuity, capital, and human labor could provide. Well, I imagine, Mr. Mack, that your primary concern right now, and the thing uppermost in your mind is the opening tomorrow morning, isn't it? Yes, it is. I want the Seattle public to see this new store at its best. I want them to feel the spirit of the store. I want them to realize that, that modern and shiny as it is, that the same old penny personalized service is here, just as it was in the old store. Well, that uh, would summarize your plans and hopes for the present as well as the future, wouldn't it? 
Yes, I want this store to be a permanent service unit in the retail trade. I have great confidence in the future of Seattle and the Northwest, and that is a confidence that is shared by our directors and employees alike. Well, many thanks, Mr. Mack, for your comments and blanket credit, too, to all your employees who have cooperated in making this segment of Washington's work possible. Today, we welcome into the Seattle business scene this fine new store that adds its note to the general picture of progress and development of the state of Washington. And on that note, we bring this 15th segment of Washington at work to a close. Next Wednesday, we'll visit the plant of the Everett Pulp and Paper Company up in Everett to broadcast the activities of another typically Northwest key industry. Washington at Work is prepared in collaboration with Vic Hurley, whose Monday evening feature program on KJR, Every Man a King, shows Washington at play. Till next Wednesday, then, this is Roland Bradley returning into our studios in Metropolitan Center in Seattle. Boy, and don't I wish I had that recording of the Everett Pulp Mill visit, because that would give me another 13 weeks of material to be able to stretch out. Well, thank goodness our long national nightmare is over. Washington at work, 13 installments. Finally come to a close. You can go back and listen to the last 12 episodes of Cascade of History, and you can skip ahead and mess around and hear the whole thing in its entirety, and maybe it'll <laughs> maybe it will be more, more coherent than it was in those two-and-a-half-minute uh, pieces over the last several months. All right. Well, um, so typically, Cascade of History here on Space 101.1 FM, you know, we broadcast live from the vintage headquarters at the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station, the Master at Arms Quarters. It's now Magnuson Park. It's a beautiful facility, but it's got so much history all over the place. So we usually have live interviews because it's, you know, it's Sunday night and it's fun to talk to people live. And that the interview we just did with John Carp and that Tacoma group trying to save that church. I love that. that that's that's great. But sometimes I, I want to go slightly off format with this old interviews. I recorded these in November of 2016. And uh, this is with Gordon DeWitty. Um, he is a Seattle black radio pioneer. He passed away unexpectedly just after I talked to him. I think he died in January of 2017. We had all kinds of plans to for he was going to come back to Seattle. He's living in L.A. He was he was a musician. Um, after he was the youngest, one of the youngest DJs in American history. And I, you know, I, I've always thought KYAC, which we have a little video at the Cascade of History um, Facebook page right now. KYAC was the black radio station when I was growing up in the early 70s. I lived really close to the transmitter in the studio, which was kind of oddly enough was on Rose Hill in Kirkland. Um, anyway, I thought that was Seattle's first black radio station, but I stumbled across some stuff. This is maybe a decade ago about this station, KZAM, KZAM. And then I found there was this 12-year-old black kid who was blind who had a radio show on KZAM. And somehow or other, I don't know, can't remember exactly how I did it, but I found him, I found his phone number and called him up. And that's what we're going to hear tonight is an installment of him. And this is, the audio is not great, but it's, it's, things he says are fabulous. So this is uh, Gordon DeWitty and me talking back in November 2016. Here, here, here comes Mr. DeWitty picking up the phone. 30, 2020. Hi, is this Mr. DeWitty? Yeah, who's calling? Oh, my name's Felix Bunnell. I live in Seattle. I'm a okay. I'm a radio historian, and I came across your story recently about when you were on the air at KZAM in Seattle back around 1960. Yes. <laughs> I, I grew up in Kirkland, which is across the lake from Seattle, and uh, we had a okay. station. There was a station called KYAC. That's right. After KZA. <laughs> and I had, I had thought until a few weeks ago that KYAC was the first sort of quote-unquote black music station in Seattle. I didn't know that there was right. KZAM was around a couple of years before that. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So I do a lot of work in, I work for Cairo Radio and do history pieces every week, but I also work for a couple of different museums. And I wanted to see about okay. time to have a longer conversation with you, if it's okay, uh, just on the... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I got a project in mind. I want to do the history of black radio in the Pacific Northwest. This might be a great opportunity for us to work together. Oh, tell me, what else do you know about other black radio stations in the Pacific Northwest? Tell me more. Well, KZAM, KZAM was the first. It was the FM, of course, and the AM, there was just a radio show, but it wasn't, oh, it wasn't, it was just a once a week show that was broadcast from a station out of Tacoma. It was kind of like a, like a, uh, like the, the Tacoma station had it, and every Saturday they would do like a Saturday night fish fry radio program of black music in the in the mid fifties. But it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't 
you know, it was the, the overall programming was not for, uh, the, you know, for the black community. It was just one show they had on, and I was telling a friend of mine about it because I was about four years old when it was on the radio. Then when KZAM came on the radio in 1960, we sold so many FM radios because at that time you could get AM and FM on one, you know, like on your stereo system. But FM had not, had not, you know, had not taken off. It was, I mean, it was just, there were only two or maybe three stations at that time on FM, including KZAM. The other station was, uh, was one that programmed like uh, office music, so it was you know it was just for dentists and doctors, easy, very easy listening, Percy Face and all that kind of stuff. So when KZAM came on the radio, between the beginning of October to December, when I went on the air, they sold they sold more FM radios than that was even believable. I mean. You know, I mean, it just, I think they were selling for $19.95 per unit, $19.95. By the end of December, the price had jumped, of course, and they were sold out. You couldn't get, you couldn't get an FM radio. So, you know, because the black community was so hungry to have our, our, you know, our music from the, you know, from the rhythm, blues, and jazz era, uh, and gospel, so it was just like, man, it was a breath of fresh air. And oh man, yeah. But the other thing, and I'll just, I'll just get this to you, is that um, Lloyd Jones, Quincy Jones's brother, actually was one of the predominant engineers. And you probably have history on him right there on Cairo, because he did the radio broadcast. He set up the remote. Uh, uh, broadcast opportunities for uh, Husky radio, uh, Husky basketball and football games. He did all the engineering for that. And, uh, yeah, so there's a lot we could talk about. Now, I would love to get into this because I've been saying for the last couple of years, I said we need to do a history of black uh, radio in, in the Pacific Northwest, in the great Northwest. And I, I meant... Yeah, and I mean, it would be so, yeah. Station, I imagine there was probably a station in Portland, maybe one in Spokane eventually. I mean, I don't know if... No, yeah, yeah. They didn't come to way after. In fact, they still don't have... They never had a station for them that was FM or AM that was, that was, that was, uh, you know, that was, that was directed to that, to our music, to African-American uh, pop, pop and history, historical music. So KZM was it. We were the beacon. Now this guy, and it, by a guy named Monty Stroll? He, he, well, Monty Stroll was the general manager, but he actually, yeah, Monty Stroll came on and he was cool, um, but he actually caused the problem, not to, the station not to work because he embezzled the money that had been invested by people in the black community, their dollars and their quarters and their nickels and dimes and the business guys, and he... He embezzled the money, so actually, he caused it to, for us to lose our footing right away. I don't think money was there more than I think he maybe left within a year. The year of the station opening, and I mean the station was just jumping, man. It was so cool. But I I really want to do this project, and I think God has made this possible. Oh, let, 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 okay, let, uh, young man, hold on. Okay, I'm trying to get, get some directions here for, for my driver. Um, but, uh, yeah, we can have an extensive conversation, and we can work together on this. This would be, this is my dream. And I know where there are tapes of KZAM Radio. I know where there are tapes. Yeah, I know where there are tapes in Seattle on KZAM Radio. So with some... Yeah, with some with some funding, you know, it's going to be a little, you know some funding to do it properly. But man, we could be this could turn into something really, really extraordinary. Not just for Seattle, but for America, for the history of radio, black radio in America. You know, 
because uh, there were there were whole uh, news uh, uh, programming that were being developed and, and produced in the in the in the in, in the east and you know but and in the south but nothing so far north of Seattle. I mean, Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, but then you know then you had to go to the, the metropolises: Chicago, Detroit. Uh, New York, uh, Philadelphia, you know, you had to go there <clears throat> to get, um, you know, uh, people that were that were trained to do that kind of work and, and, and the investment money to put the, those kind of programs together. Yeah. Now, um, I interviewed, I did an interview with Frank Barrow, who, uh, the program. Frank B. Barrow, yeah. Di yeah, Diving dive Gene Woods. I was, he was 16 when he came out here by bus to Seattle. And he was, he was, you know, just a young doc, young discharge. He, you mentioned my name to him, and immediately, yeah. Oh, man. Frank P. Barrow, he was Jive and Gene Woods was his air name? Or what do you mean? Yeah, Jive and Gene Woods. Yeah, Jive and Gene Woods was his first, his, his, his name on, on the radio when he came to Seattle. Then he became Frank P. Barrow, but that was later on. Was he on KZAM first? Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, so what mm -hmm. connections? I, mean, I don't. I don't. If you're busy right now, we can make an appointment to talk later. But I, I mean, I could talk all day. But what? Um, what connections are there? Other connections are there? Uh, people between KZAM and that's how it was. People called it KZAM, right? Yeah, KZAM. Yeah. Okay. So between KZAM and KYAC. Well, it was just personnel. It wasn't anything. I mean, it was the guys that worked on KZAM that were origin the original uh, uh, black. Uh, engineers and, and, and radio personalities, then when KZAM went off the air, it took a while before they got the, what is it, the, they got management and everything established to do, uh, uh, to, to do KYAC. Well, see, um, KYAC was the second development, but it had a little more money, and that's where, that's where Quincy Jones' brother-in-law, brother, built all the radio stations, you know, he, he wired all those things. I can talk about this, and I got all the information, all the history. I know how to get the tape. I know how to do this, and I'm just looking for, for you know, the kind of resources to put this to be major, man. This could be major. Well, let's do this. Um, when would be okay. a good time for us to talk at greater length about, uh, like, and also if, you're, if you have a landline that I can call you on instead of a cell phone. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Let me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let me write down that number if I can. Okay. Bye. All right. And I'm so excited. You don't even know. I'm thrilled. I love it. And and we can find some of the guys are still living. They were great and they were. It became national and international success in the communications business. So. And if we now is Cairo going to do this, or is this your project? Well, it's my project. But I would probably do a couple things. I would probably pick. Um, I'd probably do a radio story first, like a little five-minute story, for sometime around right. November, which I think is when KZAM went off the air. I think they went out of business in a, at the end of November in '64, '63 maybe. Yeah. Right. 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 Do a little story then and highlight you and talk about you there, and that and that kind of gives us an entree to use that story to other people what we're trying to do. Thrilled to find this about Kazam the other day, or Kazam, and then thrilled to find your name, and then thrilled to find you online and be able to call you. So this is great. So well, I, I, yeah, and my and my coin is the world's youngest disc jockey. Because at that time I was 12, and I was the world's youngest disc jockey. And I now they have a couple more people that have come on, but we could actually put that together with something else that I want to do. So okay, so time to get on the phone and really hash it, hang, you know, really get at it. Um, you tell me what's available for you and I'll make it available for me. I, you know, I'm pretty, I have a loose, loose, loose spot. We can do like an afternoon like this, get on the, on the landline and just start going at it. Okay. Yeah. Felix, I look forward to doing this, man. I will. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get, well, it, it'll be an extraordinary piece, man. It will. It's, yeah, yeah, and the interesting thing just, yeah, but I'll tell you all this. Actually, when I, 
they did a, a fundraiser to buy me a Braille writer uh, in 1960. I still have it. It's, it's a piece. It's, 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 yeah. <laughs> so just to tell you how how close and how much it all means to me and meant to me and how it can be a real a real something real prominent in my in my own career. I was just having a conversation with my driver that I really uh, look forward to being able to you know get 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 this as one of the as one of the uh, you know one of the uh, rungs in the ladder, if you will. Yeah. So. I've seen the newspaper clip about when they ran that campaign to raise money to buy your Braille typewriter from uh, February 18th. Yeah, 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 man. So I'm so thrilled, man. The headline says, Blind Negro Lad is Radio Disc Jockey. <laughs> well, Blind Negro Lad, we sure, we sure coined at that time. So, yeah. God, Gordon DeWitty had such a great laugh, and I'm still just sad hearing that tape, knowing that he passed away about about six or eight weeks after that first conversation. Um, and uh, the fact that he's talking about he knows all these guys who have the tapes from KZAM from early 1960s. I, you know, the project sort of ended when uh, when Mr. DeWitty passed away. But there was a second interview I had with him. I can't play the whole thing tonight. It's about a 90-minute interview. Uh, got a pretty decent excerpt, and we'll get to as much of it as we can. This is Cascade of History. We're live from Magnuson Park at the historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station Master at Arms Quarters at the Gatehouse. I'm Felix Bunnell. We're sort of midway through a look back, sort of a celebration of Gordon DeWitty, one of Seattle's earliest black radio pioneers. Uh, it would This coming June 24th would have been Gordon DeWitty's 74th birthday. So here, let's jump into this interview. This is from November 9th. 2016 on Cascade of History. Well, hey, man, uh, uh, God is good, and so he just put us in touch, and I'm glad because it's been on my mind to do this project, and I really know that, um, you know, it will be, it will spiral to other areas of the country because everybody has a story to tell about, about black music in America, period, but especially by the ways that it came, like in the South, man, in Memphis and and all those uh, southern metropolis areas where uh, black radio was always was just the key for everybody to tag in, you know, and get the music circulated and get the information circulated. And man, it, I mean, it's it's some great stuff out there, man. It's it's some great chatter. The guys, the 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 personalities that were on the radio and and the development of all of that because it all kind of sacked in together and eventually that's where Dick Clark and all the guys kind of came in, you know, into the, into the, into the genre of, of, if you will call it rap, it was, it was, it was pop chat at that time. You know, everybody was, Hey daddy. Oh, and Hey man. And the cats and, you know, everybody had hooks and hooks and flavors on their thing, man. And that's what made it all, kind of come together because it was it was it was a it was a whole experience and I was born in Seattle Washington up at Columbus Hospital in 1949 uh, and uh, yeah I was born and raised there and, and uh, at 20 uh, I was requested by Bobby Womack to come and work in his band uh, playing keyboards for him and uh once i got there he he moved me up to being his musical director and then we did some composition together but the interesting thing is that he had a four-piece rhythm section and three of the guys were from seattle so he had a, he had seattle sound on his thing john carmody who plays guitar who's played uh, all over the pacific northwest as, as a kid he grew up in seattle uh, Carmody played guitar, and Wayne Bibb, who was from the Central Area, who is probably one of the most dynamic trap drummers of all times, and I say that with being very, very honest, this boy was the load. He was it. And uh, he played traps, and I played keyboards, and, and then uh, Womack's brother played bass. So Womack had the Seattle sound uh, in his group, in his band, and and we spanked everybody. We we didn't take no prisoners. We didn't take uh, no. We didn't take no prisoners. Bobby, 
Bobby, uh, being the profound performer and guitarist and composer and arranger and and vocalist and everything, was just it was just an honor to work with him. And I, I mean, I worked with all of the cats. I mean, I worked with Johnny Guitar Watson. I was just listening. Just took off Johnny Guitar on a piece that he did. I just told my Apple uh, to bring up some Johnny Guitar, and it was a tune I hadn't heard by him. But I was really looking for Johnny Guitar, uh, Johnny Watson, which is the way he goes by this particular uh, project. He's playing jazz piano and singing classics. Um, uh, yeah, oh yeah, and it's a spanking album. And that first time I heard that record was on KZM Radio on Martin Wyatt, who was the afternoon, Sunday afternoon jock. Martin was from Northern California, I believe, and he came to Seattle by way of the University of Washington. He played, he was a halfback for the University of Washington Rose Bowl team in 1960. And uh, he was on the radio at KSAM, as there were a number of guys. They were all from, well, we had guys from Seattle, and then we had guys from out of state that, that were going to school at the university uh, in the communications era, uh, area. And so those guys all came over and did uh, shows on, on uh, KSAM and so to, to get their chops up, because they loved to program music, and, and it was an opportunity for them to be on the radio. And, of course, we were broadcasting from all the way up by by Vancouver, Canada, all the way down to Mexico, to the Mexican border, pretty much, on a good, you know, on a good uh, frequency day, man, we, we was doling it out. And like I, I, I mentioned before, that, uh, you know, we were, we were, there were only three stations on FM at the time, and uh, the other two stations were were elevator music, that doctors used and, and uh, you know, for their uh, overhead music programming. So those stations were just, they, you know, they were just, there was no commercials, nothing. It was just, you know, you know Ray Conniff and, you know, whoever, you know, playing some easy, does it, music while they pull your teeth or, you know, extrapolated your brain, <laughs> you know. When did your parents move to Seattle? My parent, my dad, my mom moved to Seattle in 45, I think it was. And my dad moved there right around the same time. He was discharged from the Navy over in Bremerton. And my mother came to Seattle. Um, uh, my grandparents worked in the shipyards. And so they came from camp, from uh, Arkansas to Seattle. And my mother went to school in Port or Port. Port Orchard, Port Orchard, okay, Washington, where the population of blacks was one <laughs> at Port Orchard High School. I think my mom said there might have been one other girl or something that went to Port Orchard High, maybe one other black girl, maybe, and I can't even recall because there were, I mean, that was Port, or Port Orchard, yeah, it was, yeah. And uh, my mom was was a senior in high school out there. Can you imagine? I mean, I can't even imagine why my mom told some fierce stories about what she went through out there. But then it kind of equated to what I went through at Queen Anne because when I went to Queen Anne High School, there were only five blacks and 3,000 students. And so her parents came from Arkansas and worked in the shipyards during World War II. And and the thing was, my grandmother had gone to uh, Arkansas State, Arkansas Women's College in in Arkansas, and got her degree in education, and got her her uh, her credential, her, her teacher's credential, to teach elementary um, school children. When she came out to the north, northwest, they didn't, they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't recognize it. So she she could not get any work here as a teacher. So she had to take uh, work in the shipyards, and then she had to take later on she had to take some work as a uh, working cleaning, doing cleaning and and work in the in the in the, in the evenings, you know. Yeah. So it was. Where was the house that you grew up in? What, what was the address? Do you remember? Seven oh five Twenty Fourth Avenue East, Twenty Fourth and Roy. 
Yeah, yeah. So the rice. Are, are, you, are you blind since birth? Yeah, I was born with glaucoma, okay. and uh, I by the time I was ten, I lost all my vision. Um, uh, the glaucoma was was proceeding. Like when I was born, I had enough vision to see uh, colors and and figures and things up close. Um, but then, as the as my uh, as the disease became more pronounced, uh, and the doctors were doing numerous surgeries on my eyes at the time, and I was kind of the guinea pig. So I think that that contributed to me to the loss of some of my vision. Then I yeah, and then I had a couple of really bad accidents as a kid out on the sidewalk playing with the other kids, and I fell off my bike. We were playing tag on the bikes and the skate people, and the skate people would grab you when you went by, and somebody grabbed me, and I tumbled. And I think, this, yeah, it was one of those things. But I fell on my face, on my right eye, which was my strongest eye. And it took them about six hours to sew it back together. And in those days, they just used stitching. They didn't use, I think they... They didn't even use dissolvable. I think they were just coming into the into the dissolvable stitches, but they hadn't quite got it perfected. So they were putting string, you know. <laughs> they were stringing me along. Mm-hmm. So did you listen? Did your family listen to the radio a lot when you were a little kid? Was the radio? Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, my mother and my I mean, my mom. Uh, she would uh, during the day when she was housekeeping and stuff at the house and and ironing and, you know, homemaking, she would put on uh, a bunch of different 78s. And it would be Dinah Washington and Joe Williams and Nat Cole and Ray Charles and uh, who else? Well, Nancy Wilson had popped yet, but uh, Ella Fitzgerald and just, you know, everybody. You know, anybody that was that was was in the music game. My mom and dad identified with all that. So my mom was always playing music. And uh, and then my dad, he would do the same thing, but my dad, would, his was more expansive to gospel music. Like he would listen to, he'd go buy quartet uh, gospel albums <laughs> and stuff. And, and, and yeah, at the same time, he'd sit down and listen to Sam Cooke. And, All right, there's so much more to hear from uh, Gordon D. Witty, and I'm so glad that I talked to him, that I had that chance to have those two long conversations with him, but just still sad that I wasn't able to actually meet him in person and do a video project and get him up here to Seattle and go and visit some of the sites like the old where where KZAM used to broadcast from and his family home there on 24th. He's a really fascinating guy, really a sad loss uh, back in 2017. Again, that's Gordon D. Witte. Um, we'll revisit those interviews um, at some point in the future, or at least get some of them kind of out there and shared, because I feel like I've, I've been sitting on those for God, almost seven years, and it's just, a, it's just a, it's a great story. And that some of the people, the names he mentions of guys who were working at KZAM, I don't think that history is written down anywhere. I feel like there's, there's a need. I would love to work on a, a black Seattle Black Radio history project to look at the KZAM years, as well as more about KYAC, too. too. So, All right, well, it's coming to the end of another broadcast of a live broadcast of Cascade of History here on Space 101.1 FM. I think I'll be back next Sunday night. I don't know for sure. Uh, it's going to be sort of kind of case-by-case throughout the summer here. We'll get back to full live all the time, probably in the fall. Things just quiet down a little bit in the summer, and it's nice to have take some time off, too. So in the meantime, uh, you can get our podcast pretty much anywhere. We have it at SoundCloud. You can get it at Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Go to the Space 101.1 FM website for more information about all the other great programs on the station. And the best way to f- keep abreast of everything we're doing at Cascade of History is through our Facebook page, Cascade of History. Just like that and follow it and like things, and you'll see links to stuff. And not and we put stuff in addition to the stuff we're covering on the radio. So anyway, have a good rest of the night, and come in, uh, we'll see you next week on Cascade of History. And i got to turn off <laughs> Gordon D. Witty cut before I can play my outro music. There we go. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it, that's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. 
When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.